Well, Jake Novak, who is um, host of Novak Now on the Nahum Siegel Network every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. He is, of course, a great political and economic um, a correspondent, commentator, etc. And he is with us live via telephone. As we know, yesterday was a big day when it comes to um, the Iran deal and its future. And he's here to discuss that and many other things. Jake Novak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thanks for having me. Well, you made me hungry now with all these promos for food events. I can't eat for another. I just had breakfast. I won't be able to eat for another five hours. You're in, a lot. You're invited to join us. Okay. <laughs> if, you right. can, if you can't resist, you get in the car and you join us. Yeah. Oh my God. So you know, it's funny. Yesterday we broke in. We we played BB Speech live for everybody on the network, and obviously had our chance to give the layman's you know analysis of what we thought. And and you know, I started piecing things together uh, on the air after it was over. For instance, uh, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Macron's visit was so dominated by the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think it was a coincidence that, according to what Jacob Kornblue told us yesterday on the air, it is rare that the media is informed of phone conversations between President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, and they made a very big deal to make sure everyone knew that on Saturday they had spoken by telephone. Right. Uh, and I guess that all of the, I mean, it's no secret now, unless... You, you know, uh, unless you just think I'm a great, I'm a great, uh, you know, conspiracy theory guy. It's no secret that all of this was a setup because all of them, meaning the the important world leaders on this issue, knew what was coming down the bike. Yeah, I mean, to reverse the strong persuasion game that was played by the pro-Iran deal forces, uh, the people who really want to revisit this deal to really either radically change it or have us exit the deal needed to get everyone's attention. The biggest challenge of anyone trying to persuade the public is to first get their attention. Now, if you're not the president of the United States, you don't necessarily get their attention. So if President Trump wasn't going to specifically talk about it, and he has in the past, but never for longer periods of time other than at a rally or to make a single tweet, then you don't know if people are going to be paying attention. And, you know, this, again, was something that was used by the pro-Iran deal forces. And I mentioned this on my show yesterday, uh, you know, on Novak Now yesterday, that when President Obama first presented the real selling of the Iran deal to the American people in April of 2015, he did it during a middle-of-the-day news, bre- uh, news break that wasn't just carried by the cable networks. He made sure that the, ne- the, the regular broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, broke into their talk shows or soap operas or what have you to have him announce it. So this is absolutely, you're absolutely right. The setup for this had to be, let's get everyone's attention first. Let's get several days of attention for this. Let's make sure the Macron-Trump summit is really focused on this and the reporting on it is focused on this. And then let's make sure we get this story out that Netanyahu had spoken to President Trump over the weekend about it. So all of that had to be a setup. Otherwise, people I don't think would have paid much attention, and you can't persuade people if they're not watching. Right, and uh, you know, just like Bibi does by presenting the speech, in prime time in uh, in Israel, which he does, you know, to grab the nation's attention there, yeah. I was frankly shocked <laughs> that he didn't go for a 3 a.m. <laughs> presentation so he would get prime time here, frankly, yeah. <laughs> because it looked like it was more important that the Americans hear it than the Israelis hear it. You know, I think American prime time for the evening is not what it used to be. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that during the middle of the day, breaking in to broadcast, and, and even you did that, is now has almost as much impact, if not more impact, than some of these primetime shows. Because what's happened in American television news is the cable news networks now in primetime just go all opinion all the time after 6 p.m. And that means that if you're really looking for breaking news, just just the news I don't want to hear anyone's take on it, uh, you may not find it. 
uh, uh, on your cable box. So I think that there is a there's a good argument to be made. Hey, do it at 1 p.m. Especially and also while the markets are still open, and then you get the financial news folks who might be a little bit more inclined to to be on your side if you're Netanyahu on this one uh, to to watch as well. So I think that there may have been some calculation there as well. Interesting. Jake Novak is with us. You know, the Times today, and the Times meaning the New York Times, and I don't like referring to them, obviously, but they're a newspaper of record, so it's interesting to see, you know, what they have to report, etc. So one of the things in this whole analysis of Macron and Merkel and their, you know, contribution to this, uh, you know, pre-Netanyahu announcement thing, they claim that Macron and Merkel both have gone to the White House, I'm quoting now, to make the case that the U.S. was more secure with the Iran deal than without it. Would you say it's an accurate portrayal of what Macron actually said? Uh, I'd say it's probably an accurate portrayal of what they said, it's, but, what they, but what they said isn't true. You know, I don't know what part of the escalated wars in Syria, Yemen, and the emboldening of, emboldening of Hamas and it, the increased power of Hezbollah, these people have missed. Since the Iran deal was signed, there has been more war in the Middle East by a, factor, by a great factor. We had, unfortunately, about 140,000 total deaths, for example, in the war in Iraq. We're way over half a million in Syria alone, a huge number of that just in the last three years since the Iran deal was signed. We have a new war now in Yemen with Houthi rebels firing missiles not only at, their Yemeni, at the Yemeni forces but into Riyadh. Mm. We have Hezbollah much more active. We have Hamas much more active. I mean, this, this notion that the only other option is war is exactly, you know, as we say in Yiddish, it's exactly upside down. The fact is, is that leaving the Iran deal is our best chance for peace. And this argument that the Europeans are making and others are making that everyone is more secure with the Iran deal, this isn't the greatest thing, but it, 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 it makes it it's better than the worst option. Well, what do you tell the 500,000 dead people and their families in Syria? Is it better off with, without, with Iran emboldened? It's, it's really quite frustrating, and it reminds me of a used car dealer saying, you know, if you don't buy my car, you know, the other guy's car is going to kill you. You know, once you hear that, you know, go to another lot. And, and we really need to have done that a long time ago. Jake Novak is with us. Another thing that came up was uh, when, when the speculation arose, you know, what Prime Minister Netanyahu might be speaking about yesterday, because, you know, his word leaked out that this major presentation was coming up. So most thought he was going to send a message to the world about what happened uh, over the weekend, meaning yeah. that the uh, 18 Iranians who were killed in Syria were the responsibility of Israel. And some conjectured that the reason, you know, Israel would never admit to any of this, of course, but in this case, there would be an exception because the perception is President Trump wants to leave the Middle East, or at least uh, you know, let go of some of the reins there in the Middle East as far as the United States uh, policing the area is concerned. And Netanyahu would have a desire to remind the world, both the Israeli people and the enemy, that they are there if policing is necessary. Now, obviously, that didn't happen yesterday because the focus was on Iran. But do you get or do you agree that he's going to have to be a little bit more forceful in the press to get that message across to other countries in the Middle East? Well, there's only one country that needs to be told about this, and that's Russia. The United States, for whatever President Trump wants to do, cannot really leave Syria until Russia leaves, too. Russia has made Syria much, much worse than it had to be, and much, much worse for Russia. You know, Russia, in, in the interim, since 2015, has started to get, make more and more deals with Saudi Arabia, both economically and militarily. And for them to stay in Syria now is really, they can no longer dance at all the weddings anymore. And it really needs to be impressed upon them, the Israelis need to impress upon them that they don't really care if the, if the Russians are supporting certain assets in Syria, the Israelis will destroy them. And I think that's the real message that needs to be sent. The United States, if the United States leaves Syria before Russia de-escalates in some way, that'll be a mistake, because the Russians 
are there in the first place because the Iran deal signaled to them that the United States wasn't interested, didn't really care what was happening in Syria, and you know mm. they were right. Mm. We now know, we have the evidence now that the Obama administration deliberately did not enforce the red line, deliberately did not pressure Iran and Assad on, on the civil war there because they didn't want to mess up their precious Iran deal. It's like a prosecutor, you know, who doesn't prosecute informants because they think they're going to get a bigger fish, and it turns out the informant was the biggest fish of them all. Right. I mean, this is, by the way, that's exactly what happened in the Whitey Bulger case for your listeners in the Boston, in the Boston area. Let them Google it, huh? Yeah, yeah, you can Google it. And, of course, the person who did that was Robert Mueller. But that's getting off the topic. But the point is, the, the, the message Israel needs to send is to Russia. And we know that Netanyahu and Putin have been in close contact for many years now over the Syria situation because nobody wanted Israel and Russia to accidentally or something bad to happen, you know, engage each other in some kind of military issue. And now I think it's been very, very clear in the last few weeks that that, that that now is impossible. It's impossible now for Israel to avoid and Russia to avoid each other if the Russians are going to continue to back Assad and, to be, and, and now intertwine themselves with Iranian bases that have been set up in that area. It was so, one thing just to do it with Assad's forces. I think the Israelis could hold off because Assad was a constant. He and his father have been in charge of Syria since forever. But now that the Iranians have bases there and the Russians are either de facto protecting them or intertwined with them somehow, there is no way Israel can avoid so, some kind of conflict. So what do you think the, the, the behind-the-scenes reaction is in the Kremlin when Israel embarks on an operation in Syria like they did over the weekend? What, what, what is Putin feeling, or is he essentially just sitting by and, you know, and, and really couldn't care less if Israel acts in this manner? No, I think that there is an internal conflict within the Kremlin, Kremlin right now. There, there are definitely camps within the Kremlin who want a who want a de-escalation in Syria and some other places, potentially Libya as well. Uh, these are the people who remember the Afghan war and what it did to the Soviet regime. The Afghan war and the failure there, as much as anything else, uh, led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. There had the Soviets had been really, really good during the Cold War about not getting involved in armed conflict. You know, they, they let us do that in the Vietnam right. War, before that in the Korean War. They were really good at that. And then once they had a war where, where Russian boys were coming home in, in, in coffins, that really turned the tide. Now, there's only been a few hundred Russian casualties in Syria so far, right. and they're, of course they're not saying they're official casualties. They're saying these are kind of like soldiers of fortune who just happen to be Russian. No one really believes that. But even that small number of casualties has been reacted to pretty strongly by the Russian public. There have been protests. There have been people getting upset. And in Putin's Russia, that's a big deal. That's almost as big a deal as a, as a protest in Soviet Russia. Not quite, but it's, it's still pretty, uh, a pretty repressed society. Wow, it sounds like if you're in Russia, you're not sure if you should root for Israel to do these things or not. You know, like you're... Yeah, well, I think, I think the Russians have overplayed their hand. I can under, with the vacuum that the Obama administration created in the Middle East made it attractive for Putin to try to dance at all the weddings in the Middle East to get involved with the Sunnis, to get involved with the Shia, do everything that you can make, make as many deals as possible, and maybe be some kind of patron of all the different warring powers in the Middle East. But now that the United States is more involved now, and they're moving away from the Obama disengagement policy completely and trying to enforce some kind of rule of law and decency, the Russians need to make a choice. And I think from, if you take a look at a balance sheet, just the economic balance sheet, forget about the military stuff, the deals that Russia has made in oil production with Saudi Arabia are much more valuable than anything they can get out of the Iranian Shia uh, side. So I think to answer your question, I think there is an, probably an internal conflict within the Kremlin, maybe not a large number of people, but there certainly is a group within the Kremlin that's arguing for, hey, we, we, we won this. We, we got involved in this vacuum that Obama created. We've made new friendships with Saudi Arabia and some other countries that are a little bit more solid. We can keep all that and avoid this, this silly sponsorship of Iran and, and their 
war, they are really passionate for war in Iran. There's no denying it. And to, to make this argument that these right. Israelis and the Americans who want war, the ones who are against the deal, is exactly the opposite of this. And by extension, they may then be saying, and if there is trouble uh, you know, on, on the uh, horizon, Israel's going to take care of it. That's right. I mean, but no one. I mean, that's that's the thing that I think the, no one, no one in Russia or anywhere else believes that the Israelis are just going to sit by. Right. They don't think they're going to do the Obama thing. So really, if you're making the argument, it's like, listen, the Iranians and the other Muslim countries, you know, not can we know the history. You stand up to them, and right. nine times out of ten, they just back down without firing a shot. Right. Why would you want to put that up against the Israeli guaranteed retaliation? They're going to protect themselves policy against a pretty proven track record on the other side of backing down when they're challenged. It's when they're not challenged. It's when they're allowed to enter into silly deals like this that they start to get more warlike. And by this, I mean Muslim countries, and particularly Iran and specifically here, that that's when they start getting adventuresome. And I think that it's, it's, no, it's no argument. It really is. And it's a silly, silly argument to say that war is the only other option. And for Russia, this is a bad choice to continue what they're doing. By the way, Jake Novak's with us. By the way, I assume you have already read as much as available about the uh, covert operation to get all this stuff out of Iran. How impressed are you by the Israelis? Well, you know, for those of us who've been following this very carefully over the years, it is very impressive. You know, there's, there's an Iranian exile community in Israel. Uh, now, most of those Israeli, Iranian exiles, Persian Jews, just live normal lives, and they're not part of any kind of uh, intelligence establishment. But we do know unofficially that for many years there has been a small community of Persian Jews living in Israel who have been kept together by design by the Mossad and the Israeli uh, Defense Forces, living together and have, kept, and have been kept apprised of certain cultural changes in Iran, speech pattern changes in Iran, so that they can basically be living in a virtual little Iran within Israel, so they can continue to be, pass themselves off as current Iranian citizens, if need be. Get my drift? Wow. So we know that this exists. We don't, obviously, I, I couldn't tell you the address, uh, you know, not that I know it, even if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> but I we know that this exists. We know that this has been a, a procedure that the Mossad has used, and that the, uh, and other Israeli intelligence uh, services have used to make sure that they're current. Now, it's difficult because they're, you know, they're not in Iran, but they continue to smuggle out and tap into as many developments, both culturally and militarily and politically in Iran, as possible, so that that emigrate community within Israel that they've cultivated can be on t- as on top of things as possible now. But the only way to, to really use them effectively, it would require you to figure out a way to let them travel in and out of Iran, no? Uh, that's obviously the biggest use, in it, and then when you do that, you've kind of expended it. But so the question is, are they able to do it remotely? Are they able via the internet or by cell phone right. or other kinds of contacts right. pass themselves off in a certain way? Right. In other words, they may be able to get photographs of every single document that we saw yesterday without ever walking into the country. Yeah, I mean, you right. know, and, and again, I mean, just to emphasize how powerful this. I mean, for those of us who lived in different parts of the country. You know, I, I grew up in the South, and I can tell the difference between a Virginia accent and a North Carolina accent. Right. Uh, you can't do that in Brooklyn. But if from Brooklyn, you might you, you, people in Brooklyn know the difference between someone who, who grew up in Midwood and someone who grew up in Mill Basin. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, that's but, how it goes. Right. So it's 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 a touchy thing, but it's but it's a very valuable asset that the Israeli intelligence community has used. Very interesting, boy. Oh boy, I'll tell you, those Israelis are impressive, huh? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, until they're not, you know, it's 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 one of those things that that's one of the you have to have the humility. It's always the humility with Israel, and uh, the, they they had a great example of. 
of losing their humility between 1967 and 1973, right. and uh, I, I, you would hope that they would never forget that lesson. Right. My father used to say that uh, when they when Israel was attacked on Yom Kippur, he said this was in the planning for six years. Yeah, and, that's right. It absolutely was. And unfortunately, it was under the radar because of the way you just described it. So I guess I guess you're as good as your latest operation, huh? <laughs> you are, and as long as and, and I think that the, you know that's part of what we talk about a lot. Also, it's like you know Israel has to be so vigilant and so about not getting you know, to fool themselves about their intelligence abilities, that a lot of other things go by the wayside, including, you know, that, that epic long argument we have in our community about Hasbara. You know, why isn't Israel better at PR, blah, blah, blah. The answer is, first of all, it's our job. It's not Israel's job to do the PR. And the second answer is they have other important things to do. It's very hard. You know, there are a lot of Arab countries that have no economy and no decent way of life, but they're great at PR. They're right. great at lying and they're great at spinning. I would rather have it the other way. I'd rather have a great country, one that's thriving, one that has nice food, one that has nice resorts, one that's doing good things for the world and technology, than one that knows how to lie. By the way, speaking of lying, Twitter exploded yesterday. Netanyahu was the target of a lot of really mean stuff going on yesterday. Yeah, and again, that, that is a tell. Just like, again, just like the, the pressuring used car salesman. When you make an argument, now what is Netanyahu saying? Is he saying everyone let's get together and bomb Iran? No, the argument of, these, of the groups against the deal say let's bring back the sanctions. Right. Remember, I remember the old days. I'm old enough to remember when people who wanted sanctions were the, peace, were the peaceniks. Remember? Right. Right. Hey, we want more sanctions on Iraq. Let's not bomb Saddam, you know, Saddam Hussein. So suddenly now somebody who wants more sanctions is being characterized as a warmonger, being characterized as, oh, giving us only one more option has to bomb Iran. I mean, that's exactly not what he's saying. But we're, again, the Iran deal has enabled Iran to start many more wars in the Middle East and much more killing. And, fi and, fi and, and finance a lot more terror. That's right. Let's go back to the sanctions. Let's cut off whatever more financial uh, aid they're getting in one way or the other or economic uh, engagement that we have that anyone has with them and see what happens. All because right. Right now, it's death. All right, uh, Novak. Now we need a prediction. Now you, <laughs> you, you think he'll uh, you think he'll uh, wash away the deal on the twelfth of May or not? Well, I think yesterday absolutely put me in the camp of yes. I wow. think he will try to wash away the deal. The question is, how will he try to wash away the deal? Will he come out to the to the world and say, let's impose some new sanctions and and and, and give Iran uh, a certain a certain amount of time to to prove that they've reversed some of the stuff, and then we can go back and we will quickly. Uh, lift the sanctions again. I think that's most, the most likely thing. But I think also now there's a good chance he's just going to say, look, we're going to reimpose the sanctions. If we're the only country that imposes them and others don't, that's fine. The American economy does not need Iran to, to, to thrive in any way whatsoever. And, of course, economics plays a big role in this. You know, nothing worth, the United States now is the biggest producer of crude oil. That's mm -hmm. right. You heard me. We are producing more crude oil than anybody, including Saudi Arabia now. And the idea that Iran is needed or the oil price is going to hurt this country, oil prices in this country have less of a negative effect than any time in my lifetime. So I, I think that the, the argument for leaving the deal as it is now and just imposing these sanctions, not starting a war, don't let anyone tell you that leaving the deal means war. That is such a falsehood. But leaving the deal and imposing these sanctions, I just don't see the negatives. Why am I still paying three twenty a gallon at the tank, at the uh, gas tank? Where are you filling up? Oh my goodness! Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, on, on most of Long Island, it's still well under three dollars. It's about two eighty or something. Uh, look, it's going up because demand is higher, and OPEC, the OPEC nations, have done a better than expected job of reducing supply. You know, every OPEC always talks about how they're going to reduce supply, and then six of the of the OPEC nations cheat and produce more. They did, again. This goes back to the deal with Russia. Russia is, Russia complied with OPEC and got in line a couple of years ago, a year or so ago, in this reduction of supply. So they've reduced supply. The question now is, what will the United States do in refining capacity 
to if, if the price gets over three dollars. We are at a situation in this country where anything under three dollars and fifty cents is still gas on sale. Because right. those of us who remember four dollars and fifteen right. cents or whatever it was, right. I think anything under three fifty is considered to be not a hardship for most of the United States. So, but if we do get over three fifty, then I think you're going to see President Trump try to do something about refining. Uh, maybe get a new refinery opened or find a new way to to uh, I- increase the number of, of, of refined gasoline that gets to gets into our cars. All right, so uh, me being dissatisfied at anything over two ninety nine, I have a, I have a long way to go. Huh? Yeah, yeah, another <laughs> fifty cents, and uh, you know, listen, there's, there's, this is this is something the country has weathered before. I, I do think it's a bigger economic indicator than than econ- economists give it credit for. I, I am concerned about rising gas prices, but again, I think because we had so many years at three fifty and higher. As long as we stay below there, I don't think it's going to be a massive negative impact. It will it will slow the growth in other areas, but it won't kill it. Jake Novak, he's amazing. Uh, with us every Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern time on what we call Novak Now. Everyone should check out the show and, of course, the archives at NahumSiegel.com. On Twitter, how do we find you, sir? At JakeJakeNY. At JakeJakeNY. Thank you, Jake. Uh, great analysis today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Jake Novak with us. Tuesday morning broadcast. Plenty more coming up at JM in the AM. Yeah.